Hello once again, and thank you for joining us. My name is Paul Heaney, and I'm the VP Editorial Director of R&D World Magazine. It's wonderful to return with the 10th episode of the R&D 100 podcast. 10th, double digits, baby. Woo. <laughs> yes, we are now officially in double digit territory, and that uh, rather excited outburst came from my co-host, Amy Kalmaskis. Amy, why don't you uh, go ahead and say hello to the folks. Hello, folks. Hey, yeah, for sure. This is Amy Kelnaskis, R&D World Senior Editor and the West Coast counterpart to Paul's Midwestern sensibility, right? <laughs> I'm I'm trying to recall the last time someone called me sensible. Um, <laughs> it's been a long while, Amy, but I will take that compliment whether it is deserved or undeserved. <laughs> but regardless, it is always nice to get together with you, Amy, for one of these podcasts. Yeah, right back at you, Paul. For those listeners who may be new to this podcast, hey, welcome. But in each episode, we examine one groundbreaking new technology and more generally, take a look at the science of innovation. That is correct. And uh, we are actually in the midst of the judging process for this year's R&D 100 Awards, which is the 61st in the history of the program. Um, for anyone who has submitted this year, our tentative plan is to announce the finalists. Uh, most years, I would say there's roughly 175 of those, uh, though it, it varies from year to year based on scoring. Uh, so that will be August 15th for the finalists. And then we will announce the winners, which means exactly those 100 R&D 100 award winners um, on August 22nd. And then also on August 22nd, we will do the special recognition medalists and the brand new professional award winners. So August 15th and August 22nd are the two days to mark on your calendar. Uh, duly marked. Hey, and let me add that we've also settled on the awards banquet too, right? Oh, that is correct, Amy. Thanks for pointing that out. So if you want to mark your calendars, that will be the evening of November 16th. Got that, everyone? Mark. Right back at the same hotel we had in 2022, the gorgeous Coronado Island Marriott Resort in Coronado, California basically right across the bay from downtown San Diego. It is, yeah, it's a stunning view. Um, it was a, in general, it was a stunning setting for last year's event. And uh, and we Ohioans are equally, uh, or, or well, we're, we're very excited as Ohioans to head back to the sunshine this November for a, a repeat of, of 2022. Because I can tell you're excited. You're already stumbling over your words. <laughs> I am. I mean, hey, right now, I mean, this is the best part of the, of the year in in ohio but uh november True. is decidedly less lovely yeah well hey before we really get into the meat of the episode paul mm -hmm. um there's a couple of really cool articles on rndworldonline.com okay. uh, yeah well, what, what, have, what have you found that that's uh, been interesting to you amy well i i think i'm you know the pizza box for sure but i might let you speak to that <laughs> well the, the, you know the pizza box yeah i'll jump on that uh yeah, go ahead. Jump in the pizza box that's a that's a mark jones uh, article and mark is mm -hmm. a, a long time contributor to, to r d world and he's actually a columnist too for design world our, our sister publication mm -hmm. but uh yeah the pizza box thing is it's uh it, it's about teflon and uh um pfas is that what you Fluoro, call yeah i can never say that word fluorocarbon polymers no yeah those things yeah um but just just all the problems with them and you know there's yeah. i think he says there's like nine competing different definitions of what they exactly are but you can find them in everything from from ski wax to toilet paper and food yeah. and cosmetics i mean they're they're pretty ubiquitous in our society um 
and you know he kind of he he really goes through. I mean, if you've read Mark's stuff, I mean, he really when he tackles an issue, he gets into the details. And I mean, I, I love his writing. Me too. And, Me too. But I mean, he kind of goes through, and it's 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 a little sad at the end. I mean, it's kind of like, well, what do you do? Do you do you throw the pizza box in the trash? Do you throw it in the recycle? And I mean, there, there are options, but none of them are really easy. No, I'm, I mean, I have enough problem deciding, you know, which recycling or not my oat milk co containers go into. <laughs> me too, me too. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, since I said oat milk, I felt like that's a very West Coast thing. I know it's, it's, a, it's not, but it just seems very trendy. But... So a couple of things that came up in um, that I saw were the uh, and because I jumped out was California, <laughs> um, yeah. the California um, is kind of get more of that Chips Act fund. So uh, if everyone's aware, oh, that was that was the Gordon Feller article. He's an, yeah, another, another yeah. contributor, and he is he's he always writes great stuff too. Yeah, really, you know, honestly, Paul, some really great writers on R and D. I have to I have to say, yeah, you're very lucky. Yes, yes, uh, for sure. But uh, yeah, so California is trying to get a chunk of that money from the Chips Act. It's a Chips and Science Act. That was uh, this uh, 2022. Yep, and yep. It's, the goal of that was to increase semiconductor manufacturing in the U.S. And they're pumping in $52 billion over the next five years. Yeah, some, so, some in Ohio, too, with the, yeah, the cell plant exactly. going in near Columbus. Yeah. Yep. They said I, the, the, there's five or six states that are at the top of that list is, of course, Texas. New York, Arizona, Oregon, and Ohio. So these right. states, including California, are already shaping their own initiatives, but um, basically trying to get more semiconductor manufacturing. And the thing is, is that, um, at least for California, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to do anything around Silicon Valley, um, the Bay Area or whatever, because it's just too expensive. So yeah, they're yeah. looking yeah, they're saying it's going to have to take place in inland California because okay. that's the only way they're going to get workers because it's too expensive, you know, for for uh, manufacturing workers to to live in the Bay Area. So that should that be, be pretty like a Fresno or a Tracy or I'm trying to think where. Well, I think it might even go into like um, Bakersfield. That you know, okay. a lot Stockton. Of... I'm trying. I'm trying to remember my California geography. What's in the Central Valley? Well, you're getting. You're yeah. You're you're getting real close. That's probably okay. that's what they're looking at. So. There's that. And then the one other thing um, is, uh, was it Tim who wrote about that Wall Street Journal article uh, yeah. that the, the, the DOC uh, is as early as this month, now this month, they want to stop the shipment of AI-based semiconductor chips made by NVIDIA. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, and then obviously NVIDIA is not real happy about that. So they said, all right, we'll just create lower performance chips which is an interesting strategy um, yeah, i think they want but, they want them to license them now before yeah they yeah yeah so i don't know i think i feel like that ship has sailed but we'll see what happens but again um uh, For a second i thought you said that ship has sailed which would be <laughs> pretty good oh touche all right, I got I got nothing. So maybe well, no, and and no, I'll I'll just say for our, our listeners too, if you're if you're not already uh checking out rdworldonline.com, I, I suggest you do it. Uh, every usually every Monday, every week we have a a great R&D Power Index article which is uh the the story that that Amy yeah. just referenced was in and uh Tim Studd who was a longtime R&D editor um Forever. Yeah. retired but still writes for us. He does a, a really nice uh roundup of things uh that are going on with the the r d 25 as we call it and that mm -hmm. is a a real-time 
uh, well, there's two things. The R&D 25 is a real-time stock market summary of the top international companies that spend in R&D. So you can read his commentary on you know, newsmakers within those 25 companies for the week. But then there's also an actual stock index where you can click on on the right side of the website where you can see you know, what the value of those 25 companies is. So it's, it's pretty cool. It is. And it's, um, it's just really excellent reading. And, and it's also, I think just for, you know, whether you're an engineer, an R&D scientist or whatever, it gives you a bit of a look into the future to see where this R&D spending is yeah, and for sure. what the priorities are. So it can really kind of give you a handle on it. And again, I can't say enough about the writers on R&D. It's so we, and if we haven't said it enough, <laughs> just go check it out yourselves. And I, I guess I should stop rambling and maybe we should talk about today's episode and the technology. I think we should. I think we should go for it. So okay. today's, today's innovation, Amy, is a 2022 R&D 100 award winner. So a recent one. And it is the 32 Tesla all superconducting magnet. Oh, and speaking of a magnet, <laughs> Paul, I hear you got a Tesla. I'm all about the Teslas these days. <laughs> yes, yes, I bought a, I bought a 2020 Model Three, and I love it. It it took me a little bit to get over the mental hurdle of like, okay, I have to charge this and mm -hmm. uh, can't go to the gas station. But uh, I I can't imagine going back. It's fantastic. It, it suits my lifestyle, which you know I work at home, so uh -huh. uh, I'm I'm never going terribly far. And even if we take it on a road trip, which we've taken on one, I mean, it's just, it's so innovative. I mean, you know, you plug it in on the, on the, uh, on the GPS and it knows where all the superchargers are along the freeway. And, and there's a heck of a lot more of them than I thought there would be. And it just, it, it uh, conditions the battery as you're approaching the charging station. It like, I think it heats it up for, for kind of maximum uh, fast charging. And it's, yeah, it's mm -hmm. brilliant. I, so anyway, yeah, I am, I'm all about the Teslas these days, but these days, but Amy, yes. I'm sorry to say that this technology has nothing to do with the cars. It is all about crazy strong magnets that are used in research. Well, okay. First of all, I'm proud to see you broadening your horizons a bit. <laughs> and actually I'm not much of a car person, even though I think EVs are technologically really fascinating, mm -hmm. um, but, but superconducting magnets. Now that I want to hear more about. All right. So, well, I'm, I'm trying to broaden the horizons. For <laughs> okay. You. So I spoke with uh, two very interesting gentlemen from the National High Magnetic Field Laboratory at Florida State University, Mark Bird, the Chief Technology Officer, and Brent Jarvis, a magnet science and technology technician. So Mark told me a little bit about the facility. Well, the National High Magnetic Field Laboratory is a user facility for condensed matter physics, biology, and chemistry. And so we provide very high field magnets that uh, physicists, chemists, and biologists from around the country and around the world come here to use them. Uh, most of the users are physicists, probably the largest contingent of users are physicists, and they tend to have modest superconducting magnets in their home labs. But the highest field magnets are too expensive for everybody to have their own. And so we put them in a central location here in Tallahassee, Florida, and our other sites at Los Alamos and University of Florida. And um, they uh, apply for magnet time. The proposals get reviewed. Uh, they, you know, if they're approved, they time gets scheduled for them. They travel here, typically run for a week in the DC field and the pulse field facility, collect data. 
that they go home and analyze the data and publish their results. We're part of Florida State University. Um, we have professors uh, at FSU who have space here and do research here, but we're not an academic department. We're, we're more closely aligned with the physics department and the mechanical engineering department than any others, but we're, we're not an academic department. Oh, and quick question, Paul. What, what's Mark's background and Brent's as well? Sure. Uh, Mark got his PhD at Stanford, uh, not too far from you, in mechanical mm -hmm. engineering. And then he came to the Magnet Lab in uh, 1992, and there he became the leader of the Resistive Magnet Development Program. Uh, they developed about, I think he said, 15 world record resistive magnets over a couple of decades. And then he became the director of the Magnet Science and Technology Division, which had roughly 50 people at the time. Now, they develop resistive magnets, superconducting magnets, pulse magnets, and resistive superconducting hybrids. Whew, it's a mouthful. Wow. Uh, he, was he was doing that for about 16 years, and he just recently moved on to be the chief technology officer for the National Magnet Lab. And then as far as Brent, uh, he has an industrial engineering degree, and he started at the lab back in 2010. Uh, Brent has been working on the 32T project for 10 of the 12 years he's been there. And then just, I guess, for clarity, I should point out that FSU is the host institute institution there in Tallahassee, but hmm. there are other campuses too, um, I believe at the University of Florida and Los Alamos. Um, and then the core funding for the whole thing comes from the National Science Foundation. Oh, cool, great background. Okay, I got it. Thanks for all that, Paul. Sure, sure. So the genesis, Amy, for the idea of this 32T magnet goes back a little bit. Um, when the Magnet Lab was created in the early 1990s, one of the goals was to produce a nuclear magnetic resonance magnet that would operate at 23 and a half Tesla. Um, back in, you know, in those days, the highest NMR magnets were in the range of about 21 Tesla. And traditionally, superconducting magnets are what's are, are used, the ones that are used are called low temperature semiconductors and titanium and IBU 310. And then there was the discovery of high temperature semiconductors. So I'm not telling this very well. So here's Mark to tell us a little bit more. And there had just been the discovery at that time of what are called the high temperature superconductors. Um, and there's a, there's a large number of different high temperature superconductors, but they will superconduct not just at higher temperatures than the earlier low temperature conductors, but also at higher magnetic fields. And so from the very beginning of the Magnet Lab, we had a program of trying to develop those conductors to the point where we could build reliable magnets from them. And that took quite a while, and we weren't the only people working on that. That was work that was going on worldwide by a number of different organizations, and in particular, the United States Department of Energy Office of Electricity was putting a lot of funding into it. And in 2007, a new conductor called, uh, sometimes called second generation conductor. Um, it's, uh, it's a high strength substrate. The, the version we use uses a Hastelloy substrate. That's a nickel-based alloy. There's some buffer layers on it. There's a micron of the actual superconductor and then some silver and copper. So this conductor cross-section is roughly half nickel-based alloy and half copper and just 1% actual superconductor. But that became available in 2007, and almost immediately, 
uh, small coil was wound by the company that makes the conductor, and that was brought down here to the magnet lab to be tested in the high background magnetic field, and it went to you know, the highest field that had been done at that point uh, with a superconducting test coil. And we had been partnering with that company for quite a while before that, building test coils. But when they had this new conductor, uh, we're able to build a much better test coil than had been done previously. Uh, that was 2007. In 2008, we built a second test coil that uh, performed much better than the first one. That was one we developed in-house, and, and it was significantly better performance. And then we submitted a proposal in 2009 to the National Science Foundation to fund the development of the new magnet. Funding was awarded late 2009, and uh, the magnet reached field in 2017. And it was then put into operation a few years later. Okay, I'm trying to put this in perspective in my head. So yeah, how, yeah. Big, how big or powerful are these magnets? Well, so they're crazy strong. I think my my favorite thing that they told me was, think of the average refrigerator, refrigerator magnet you have at home. Uh -huh. So that's, I'm guessing that's probably the strongest magnet you have in, in most homes, right? Yeah. So this 32T is roughly 3,000 times stronger than that magnet. <laughs> right, because that'll really keep my veggies crisp. <laughs> it will and your and your gallon of milk as hard as a diamond i suppose too. <laughs> okay now i see how they get their funding okay well let's hear from mark once again on the team that built the 32t dennis markowitz led the effort to write the proposal he had built that second test coil that i mentioned and his background is he'd been working in superconducting magnets since the early 70s and had built numerous record magnets before coming here uh, he joined us here in 1991, I believe, and um, he had built numerous magnets pr prior to that. And then once he got here, he led the development of our uh, 21 Tesla NMR magnet, which was uh, the highest field NMR magnet at that time. And then uh, once that was complete, you know, the high temperature superconductors were making a lot of progress and he started looking at those. He wrote a very important paper on how you could actually build a magnet that was reliable using those conductors. Lots of people have been trying to build test coils and, and they would frequently get damaged. He explained how you could protect the magnets uh, from damaging themselves. And then when the conductor seemed reliable, uh, he led the effort to write that proposal. Uh, so he was the principal investigator um, when the proposal was written, there was a second co-principal investigator, David Larbalestier, who was a material scientist who'd been working in superconducting materials for decades, uh, who ran, uh, he was the director of the Applied Superconductivity Center here at the Magnet Lab. Uh, he had just relocated here a couple of years earlier from, or actually, yeah, three years earlier from uh, University of Wisconsin at Madison. Uh, they were the those two put a lot of effort into writing the proposal. I was involved a bit, and um, there were people from our scientific staff here who wrote uh, explanations of what the magnet would be used for and how important that was to the scientific community. And um, the proposal was submitted, evaluated, and uh, and then funded. Hmm. You know, compared to a lot of the innovations we talk about on here, Paul, this seems super straightforward, no? I mean, like, Let's build it. Let's get it funded. And it was built. 
and I don't know, was it really that that simple? I can't imagine that. Yeah, Amy, um, you know, there's always some unforeseen things in these, you know, these types of builds. And mm -hmm. I, I did ask Mark about that. Um, one thing that came into play that you'll hear in a minute here was something that was new to me, something called Rebco tape, R-E-B-C-O, which mm -hmm. stands for Rare Earth Barium Copper Oxide Tape. So I guess it's sort of the magnet builder's version of duct tape. Here's Mark. Um, Dennis Markowitz had been building superconducting magnets for over 20 years at this point and had done quite a few of them. Uh, but they used the earlier low temperature superconductors, which were very uh, uniform behavior along their length and consistent from piece to piece. The Rebco conductor that we were using, one of the high temperature superconductors, the second generation conductor, is not nearly as uniform. And it was really in an early developmental stage when we uh, started trying to build a magnet from it. And so there's a lot of requirements that one would normally put on a superconductor when you buy it. Like you would typically say that the it should have a carry a current of a certain amount plus or minus a fairly small margin. That was not something the manufacturer was willing to accept. They would only accept a lower bound on the performance. They said, you know, it'll it'll carry more than this amount of current, and then you have you know you have to accept it. You have to pay for it, and um, they wouldn't accept uh, an upper bound on the current, much less tight restrictions. And so there was this big uncertainty in how well the, the conductor would perform. And, and you might think that if if you ask for a conductor to carry 200 amps and it carries 300 amps, you might think, well, that's great. You got 50% more than you asked for. But superconducting magnets are very complicated things. And if they carry more current than you want, that can be a problem also. And so we actually got the, the conductor that was delivered had a factor of three variation in its uh, performance. Some of it was three times better than the minimum requirement. And so that made uh, building a magnet that's reliable quite a challenge from it. But there was a number of other things. As I mentioned, people had been building test coils using the high temperature superconductors for quite a few years and would frequently destroy them. A superconducting magnet, uh, when current is flowing through it in the superconducting state, it has zero voltage across it. So there's zero power being consumed, zero heating. But it's possible to get disturbances in the magnet that will raise the temperature above the critical temperature and then it stops superconducting. It becomes a resistive the current's flowing then through a resistive metal. And so it, there's voltage associated and it generates heat. And when that happens, you can get a small volume of the coil that overheats because there's a lot of energy stored in the magnetic field. It can get converted into heat in a small volume and that volume can get above the melting temperature of the materials. And so all superconducting magnets have quench protection uh, challenges to prevent that from happening. And there were methods for doing that for the low temperature superconductors that were very well developed. But for these new high temperature superconductors, Dennis Markowitz had explained how it might be done in principle, but we had not done any experiments to prove it. So there was a number of experiments that were done to prove that things would actually work the way uh, he had hypothesized. And those uh, were demonstrated to be basically correct. And um, so that was a big part of the development was, was proving that uh, we could protect it the way uh, that we believed we could. 
Another thing is standard superconducting materials, when you buy them, they're insulated. Uh, the Rebco tape was not insulated. And if you were to put the standard insulation on it, it wouldn't work very well because the, the tape is extremely thin. It's, it's about a tenth of a millimeter thick, about the thickness of a sheet of paper. And so if you put standard insulation on it, it'll be as thick as the conductor itself is on each side. And so two thirds of your magnet would be insulation if you did that. And that doesn't make a very efficient magnet. So we had to develop an insulator that was um, much, much thinner than what's typically used in superconducting magnets. We ended up developing one that's about eight microns thick. It was a solid gel processed uh, ceramic that we applied. Um, I think those were the, the, the basic technological issues, but then there are, there are lots more subtleties. For example, the superconducting tape is supposed to have a rectangular cross section, like a piece of scotch tape or something. It's, it's got a thickness that's uniform across the width, but in fact, it's not. If you look at it um, carefully, you see that it's, it's much wider at the edges, much thicker at the edges than it is um, at other places. And this makes it very difficult to wind a coil out of it. Uh, you get irregular shapes. Um, and there was a number of, of other challenges. Every aspect of the fabrication process was basically new compared to the way that we'd done magnets previously. And um, there were a number of test coils built to work through all the details of it before we built the real coils. And the real coils have worked quite well to date. Huh. All right. You know, um, you know, my mind sometimes goes into weird directions. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, as does mine. It's, I think this is why we work so well together. Amy. <laughs> true, true that. So I'm picturing this superconducting magnet on a college campus and almost okay. like back to the future or something. Um, so they turn it on and every student's belt buckle and metal zipper and so forth suddenly gets ripped off and flies across the quad and sticks to the side of this otherwise unassuming building. But mm, okay, clearly <laughs> that's not what's happening in reality, right? I love how your mind works, Amy. I can see that <laughs> so clearly. Yeah. Uh, but but no, it's, it's nothing like that. Um, really the main thing with these kinds of magnets is that you have to keep them crazy cold. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, like yeah. when I say cold, I mean 4.2 degrees above absolute zero. So they install it in a vacuum vessel, which provides thermal insulation from the outside world. And there's liquid helium involved, but we can both rest assured that the various co-eds, uh, what do you say, your, their backpack zippers are safe on campus. Uh, I know, but it, it would be really funny, wouldn't it? It would okay. be. It, it, I think it would be like a sitcom or something. <laughs> a, plot in it, a plot in one of the, I don't know, what's the... Third rock from the sun or something. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good one. All right. So, well, that's okay. They're safe. But also 4.2 degrees above absolute zero. That's that's something. That's pretty incredible. So tell us about how the 32T is game changing for the industry. Okay. Well, um, the peak magnetic, magnetic fields available to the scientific community increase, like I would say, pretty slowly with time. Mm -hmm. So if you look at a plot of how they've changed from you know, the very first super superconducting magnets back in about 1960 up until 2016, like you might see an increase in the magnetic field of maybe one Tesla every five years. Mm -hmm. But with this one, it was really a jump. So when they started this magnet, the world record was 23 and a half Tesla. So the increase from 23 and a half up to 32, 
you know, was an eight and a half Tesla increase in field huh. um, in, in one step. Yeah. So Mark said there's a number of organizations around the world who are now trying to build similar magnets themselves. And those ones are kind of in the 25 to 35 Tesla range. Huh. So then what's what's next? Sounds like the 35 Tesla? Um, you know, let me hear, let me let Mark comment on that because I think what he said was pretty interesting. Okay. Um, as far as the science that can be done with the magnet, um, we already have magnets that provide the same magnetic field, um, but they're resistive magnets. And so um, a 32 Tesla resistive magnet, we use nearly 20 million watts of electricity. So you've got an enormous electric bill to pay to uh, keep that magnet running. But the, the magnetic field fluctuates with time in a resistive magnet because of uh, ripple from the power supply. When you've got a 20 megawatt uh, power supply, you can't keep the current perfectly stable in time. With the superconducting magnets, the field is much more stable, um, which is because the inductance of the magnet is very large compared to the resistance. Um, so everything's very stable and that enables you to do um, high precision measurements, uh, physical experimental measurements at very low temperatures and very stable magnetic field become possible. It also becomes more attractive to more people. There will never be a, a 30 Tesla resistive magnet at an individual physics professor's lab, but uh, it's conceivable that there will be copies of, of the uh, magnet like this at 30 to 32 Tesla around the, the country. And in fact, that's something the National Science Foundation would like to see happen is this technology to become something that there could be regional uh, 30 to 35 Tesla magnets uh, operational in the superconducting mode that would never happen with resistive magnets. But more broadly than that, um, people are now trying to build tokamaks using this technology using uh, Rebco conductors. So tokamaks are devices for containing uh, plasma, typically a hydrogen plasma or a deuterium plasma, uh, and then fusing atoms together um, to release energy. And it's a way of potentially building a nuclear power plant that doesn't have the radioactive waste that a traditional fission plant has. Some people think it's really the way to eliminate greenhouse gas emissions is to go to fusion power, but it's something that people have been pursuing since the 1950s. It's always been funded by government agencies, but now that these Rebco conductors are here and that people like ourselves have demonstrated you can build magnets out of them, they're now commercial firms trying to build uh, tokamaks out of uh, these materials. I mean, the, the biggest tokamak under construction using the earlier low temperature superconductors is called ITER, which stands for the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. It's located in Southern France. It's being built by countries all around the world, United States, most of Europe, Russia, Korea, India, Japan, China are all involved. And that I believe is over a $20 billion effort to build that uh, system because with the low temperature superconductors, you're limited in magnetic field. And so the, the machine has to be enormous. With the high temperature superconductors in principle, you can go to higher magnetic field, which means the magnets can be much more compact and therefore less expensive. And so there are two very prominent uh, companies now uh, pursuing this goal. Uh, and are making tremendous progress. I know of 28 other companies who are working in, in commercial fusion. I'm not sure how many of them are using magnetic confinement as opposed to some other approach, 
but it's become a, a major industry. Well, made you know, much bigger than uh, been has been in the past. I mean, it's gone from nothing to to a couple billion dollars of uh, capitalization just in the past ten years or so. Uh, and so that that's showing tremendous progress. Prospect, tremendous. That's showing tremendous prospects for having a positive impact on society. And I think we should end these comments from Brent and then Mark some more on what they believe is the secret sauce that they use for their innovation. Oh, this is always one of my favorite parts of the podcast, but of course, then it's no longer secret, but let's, let's hear. Okay. I think it's probably just our diversity and like, you know, we have people from all over the world working for the magnet lab and different perspectives on, you know, designing and engineering these magnets. And it's really been a blessing to, have these people here to help us and so that's what I would probably say just the just the amount of diversity we have at the lab. This is Mark and I'll just make the comment that I think the Magnet Lab has had um, a unique size compared to other organizations. Um, a very small organization can't take on building something like this you know to, to raise the capital required for it is difficult. It's hard for one person to do that individually. It, it's important to be part of a bigger organization. And as Brent said, you need a lot of different skills and a lot of different perspectives. And so you need several people involved um, in order for this to be successful. No one person can do it alone, technically or financially, typically. I mean, um, but then the, on the other extreme is there, there are certainly very large organizations um, that I've seen that tend to not get through their projects as quickly and cost-effectively and as productively as we do. And I think inevitably when you get large organizations, uh, communications overhead you know, becomes a real challenge. If, if you read management textbooks, they talk about this phenomenon. And that was one of the, the big breakthroughs with the uh, assembly line back when uh, Henry Ford invented it is that it reduces the communication overhead dramatically and enables things to get built much, much faster. And so in our work, you know, we because we're only building one magnet at a time, there's not an assembly line, but the communications overhead between the people involved is a big issue. It's it's very important to have, you know, if you can have four people working on a project full-time instead of eight people half-time, it gets much more productive. Uh, in terms of reducing the communications overhead. But it's easy to not have all the different skills that you need if you've only got four people. So that's uh, that's one of the big issues here is getting the right group of people that have the breadth of experience and knowledge needed, but no more. And that's, that's difficult to maintain. Well, that's what I've got, Amy. This has been uh, fun as always. Yeah, it, it really has. And you know that the NMR, those magnets, we actually did, a, Bill Schweber, one of our writers on EE World, has done uh -huh. some great articles about that. So maybe when you post this, I'll, I'll get put some links in there as well in R&D online. And, um, and hey, uh, this has been awesome, but I understand you're about to do something even more exciting. You're going to get on a plane tonight and disappear for a couple of weeks to where? Um, it's this little country, I probably never heard of it called Spain, but no. nah, spleen. Yeah. No, haven't heard. No, no, don't know. Yeah, we're taking the kids. We always take the kids somewhere fun. Uh -huh. So, uh, 
and, and they're getting they're getting kind of a three for one because one of our our we're doing Madrid and Barcelona, but uh-huh. one of our days we're doing a three country tour. It's kind of a little uh, tour where you have kind of breakfast, lunch, dinner in three countries. So, oh wow! In addition to Spain, we're gonna cross the border barely into France, so they can uh-huh. check that off their list, and to the tiny country of Andorra, which is I think in the is it the Pyrenees? Is that how you say it? The mountains and yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So there's this little. I think it's only like population seventy thousand. It's like a. It's like a Liechtenstein. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so we'll get. We'll all three. All, all four of us will get to mark uh, Andorra off our maps too. So maybe... <laughs> we'll have some tapas for me. I will. I will. And I would. I will. I promise to look and see what R and D things they have going on in Andorra. I'm sure they're. They've got to be well known for something, so I'm going <laughs> to make it my job to, to figure it out. Okay, will you tell us in the next podcast? I will. So, uh, you know, hey, we always like to point out, if you are a past R&D 100 award winner with an interesting development story to talk about, please do get in touch with us. You can email us the details at researchdevelopment at wtwhmedia.com. We are constantly on the lookout for topics for future R&D 100 podcast episodes. No, we certainly are. And it's just, it's a thrill just talking about some of this stuff, let alone getting a it chance is. to judge it and read it. Hey, and uh, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Twitter at eeworld underscore Amy and at WTWH underscore Paul Heaney. Amy, always a blast with you. And I am looking forward to our next episode. I am as well. And have a great trip, Paul. I will do my best. Well, until next time, this is Paul Heaney here. And Amy Kalnoskis over here. Signing off. Thanks so much for listening.